Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly, I have one of the saddest questions in the world for you. Oh no. Molly, can you die of a broken heart? You know, it can feel that way sometimes, Kristen. Mm -hmm. It really can, but only certain people can, (laughs) which is not a reassuring answer at all. You know, at first I thought it'd be great if like for the first five minutes of this podcast, we just tricked listeners somehow into thinking that we were going to take this question metaphorically and just talk about (laughs) our feelings and how it feels like our heart might break sometimes. That's not what we're going to do. No, (laughs) we're going to talk about like how really like your actual heart muscle can break. Now, when we think of the metaphorical broken heart, we think of being dumped, maybe um, someone, a spouse dying, extreme disappointment. Um, what else? The store being out of waffles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, like, there are a lot of things that you say, oh, that broke my heart. Yeah. But normally it's just like, oh, I'm sad. I'm going to eat a lot of ice cream. Yeah. But in a certain subset of people, there's... Uh, a condition called broken heart syndrome. And it's sort of spurred on by the same things. Uh, if you feel extreme emotion or stress after someone died, after you got dumped, um, even just down to the stress of public speaking, uh, learning a new task, that stress can literally break your heart. One old lady got broken heart syndrome because of a surprise party for her, a surprise birthday party. I know. <laughs> it broke her heart. So what we're talking about today is broken heart syndrome, which is this thing. It feels a lot like a heart attack. And uh, but once these doctors got in the emergency room with these women who claimed they were having a heart attack. And by the way, it is normally women more than men mm-hmm. about, you know, nine to one is the ratio. They would get them in to do the test to figure out, you know, what was going on with their heart. Um, and they would they would look at the lab results and they'd be like this. Sounds like a heart attack, but it doesn't look like a heart attack. This is not showing up on the test scans like a heart attack would. Right. And the condition is actually called cardiomyopathy. And it was first described medically in 1991 by Japanese doctors. And these Japanese doctors were looking at the shape of these these broken hearts, if you will. And they said, you know what that looks a lot like? And the other doctor was like, yeah. And the first doctor was like, an octopus net. Yeah, because when this happens to your heart, if, you know, you have the symptoms that are heart attack like, but what's going on is your left ventricle expands. And because these Japanese doctors were the first to see it, they got to name it after this octopus fishing device, like a pot or a vase or a net. Um, so they originally described it in 1991 as Takusupu cardiomyopathy. That was probably not pronounced right. But basically, it's sort of for octopus and pot. So I wanted to call this podcast, What Do Octopus Pots and Broken Hearts Have in Common? But that seemed like a, a far reach. It might confuse you guys. Yeah. Um, so like you said, though, broken heart syndrome as um, octopus heart pot <laughs> is known colloquially in the medical community. Uh, happens in women far more often than men. And a lot of the times the women are 50 or older. A lot of times we've got, we're talking about postmenopausal women, which will be key because when we talk about why this happens, that might be a factor. 
But, you know, they'd get the women in there and these women had no prior history of heart, heart problems or heart disease. They, all they can find is this enlarged left ventricle and there are no blockages in the artery because a normal heart attack is caused by those blockages in the artery. That's what hurts the heart. But what happened in 2005, there was this pretty landmark study in the New England Journal of Medicine from Johns Hopkins, and they looked at these these women who had come in complaining of this heart problem without the uh, clot showing up on the, the test with these left ventricles. And what they realized is these women had much higher than normal levels of stress hormones in their blood. Yeah, and and that's why uh, Dr. Scott Sharkey, who's a cardiologist who studied this, um, he refers to broken heart syndrome as more of a concussion of the heart, like something that is just triggered by almost like blunt trauma, if you will. Or like a from stunning stress. of the heart. Yeah, stunning of the heart. But as opposed to a heart attack, which obviously takes a while to recover, a lot of these people were almost over halfway back to normal within 48 to 72 hours. Yeah, you can you can die from it. To answer the question of our of our episode very literally, some people have died from this uh, stunning of the heart. But uh, they the reason that it's gotten so much awareness lately is some of these Johns Hopkins doctors want patients to know that just because you're going in with symptoms of a heart attack doesn't mean it may be a heart attack, and it doesn't mean you need to be on heart medication for the rest of your life. You need to be sure that you tell your doctor if anything really stressful like a broken heart that, you know, the kind of stuff that, that you would describe as breaking your heart. You need to tell them if things like that have happened. Don't ignore any possible emotional factors that could have been triggering all this stress. And it can be something as simple as uh, they said one lady just got stressed over trying to learn new computer software. Um, but then we also associate this, like we said, with a broken heart, with one spouse dying and the other just taking it so hard that they have heart problems as well. Right. And although this is referred to as broken heart syndrome, because, I mean, can you think of a catchier medical condition? I mean, it's just asking for news coverage. But I think that uh, this res- data has shown that that really only happens in terms of like it being a result of extreme emotional trauma, you know, the the widowing or the, the breakup or what have you only happens in about 40 percent. Of the cases. And the thing is, your heart can break not once, but twice, Molly. That's even, even sadder. Uh, in, in 10% of, 10% of the time, this will happen again. So in 10% it can happen again. Um, but you know, you are in control. That's another message that people, uh, that doctors want people to sort of take away from the, the publicizing of this condition is that if you are under a lot of emotional stress, if someone did die, if you are just freaked out about learning this new computer software, Find ways to manage that stress. Don't just, you know, hold it all inside. Um, there are times when just the, the shock of the stress is going to just throw you into, you know, a stunned situation perhaps. But when you know that you're dealing with things like this, some people do deal with it better than others. Those people tend to do things like eat well, exercise, sleep well. And they don't know yet, to get back to what Kristen was talking about with this postmenopausal women, they don't know yet exactly what could cause those high stress levels in some people and not others. It's possible that after a severe stressful incident, these women just don't take as good care of themselves and it, you know, weakens their immune system. Or it's possible that because these women have gone through menopause, there might be something with estrogen levels that are causing this to happen in some people, but not others. Right. But, um, of course, there are outliers, as there are 
most always with with health conditions, um, because while the median age is 63 for this to happen, it's happened to a 27 year old. It's happened to a 32 year old and it can happen to you. Yeah. Well, they're saying, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> doctors may not know how to diagnose it, which is one of the key reasons you need to tell your doctor if something really stressful has happened. It's only been since. That New England Journal of Medicine article has come out that, you know, you know, the, one of the doctors was talking about presenting it at a conference. And afterwards, all these doctors came up to him and was like, yeah, I think I saw that mm-hmm. and just didn't know at the time because, you know, if it if, you know, if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, you think it's a duck. But this looks like a heart attack and isn't a heart attack. It doesn't quack like a heart attack. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may feel like a heart attack to you, but uh, there are different ways you can recover from it. I mean, the treatment will pretty much be the same until they figure out that it's not a heart attack. And you may save yourself a lot of unnecessary surgery or medications if you know it's not a heart attack. But Molly, it's it's really good, though, that we are talking about this when we are, because we are knee deep in broken heart season. That's true. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. Do you realize, Molly? Watch out. Tell me, tell us all about the broken heart season. Well, obviously, you would think you would think it'd be like right after Valentine's Day, whenever or right before, when everyone breaks up, so they don't have to be together on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. No but it's how, not that, is it? No, how that is. <laughs> I survived it this year. No, as doctors have been looking into this more. I mean, if we think about it, the first instances were happened in what in 1991. Now we're in 2010, and so they're actually starting to draw some, you know, some correlations between things. And they have found that a majority of broken heart syndrome cases occur during the spring and summer months, and that's the complete opposite of the seasonal timing of heart attacks, which tend to occur during the winter months, which makes them wonder even more, you know, what actually happens with this broken heart syndrome. It can't just be because your heart muscles weaken like it is during um, a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So there's that. still more to come on this. There are a lot of unknowns, but it's pretty interesting. And as you said, it's it's begging for press coverage because how many times have you said I could just, just die? He yeah. broke up with me. I could just die. I've never said that actually now that I think about it. That's right, Molly. <laughs> Because you won't die. <laughs> you won't die. Buck up unless you're in a certain percentage of postmenopausal women. But the thing is, I think it's worth um, closing things out, though, with uh, the fact that similar types of health conditions can occur to men. Because while broken heart syndrome happens a lot to women, older women, and we associate it with, you know, like their husband dying suddenly or something like that, we there is another thing called the widow effect, widowhood effect, um, that has been noted by researcher Nicholas A. Christakis, who has tracked and like huge studies on tracking, um, social contagions, such as whether or not happiness is contagious and also kind of on the morbid side of things, whether or not death can be contagious. Mm-hmm. So he has done a lot of research on this topic. We'll take the morbid side of that equation that you were just talking about, Kristen. Sometimes you'll see in obituaries, you'll see where a woman died and, you know, the newspaper might, might remark that this was only a few weeks after her husband died. And so she, Christakis wanted to get to the root of this kind of issue. You know, does the remaining spouse just give up on life and want to be with the person they are married to for all these years? Do they take, do they not take as good care of themselves? Do they stop seeing the doctor? Why would such a thing happen? And so he's done a few work, a few studies kind of tracking different uh, variables. And one of the ones that was most interesting to me was that your spouse's cause of death might have an effect on whether you then will die shortly thereafter. Right, because while he did find that 
mortality after widowhood does go up for husbands and wives. Essentially, if your wife dies, it's associated with an 18% increase in across the board mortality for their husbands, their widows. Um, and then if the husband dies, then there's a 16% increase in the wife following in suit. But it isn't the same across the board for every type of illness. It depends kind of the, those, those numbers will fluctuate depending on the co- the spouse's cause of death. So for instance, let's talk about cancer just to take things down another notch. Um, there was a statistically significant effect of widowhood on cancer mortality, mortality for older people, especially with colon and lung cancer. So basically if say, a husband dies from colon or lung cancer, there is a decent chance that the wife will follow in suit. However, for um, rarer types of cancer, such as cancer of the head, neck, upper gastrointestinal tract, liver, central nervous system, pancreas, etc., cetera, uh, those chances go down. And what was funny was this study found that there are more uh, diseases that will affect a man's mortality rate than a woman's, mm-hmm. which is kind of contradictory to this broken heart syndrome, which does affect women more often than men. So it's, I mean, there's really no conclusion to make. It was just sort of an interesting, uh, interesting thing to note. All right, Molly. So now that I am a little scared of stressing myself out too much this summer because I might die in the high season of broken heart syndrome, and I'm never getting married so that I can't die right after a spouse, that's a Good way to plan your life. Uh, I think we should end things on a high note and mention that while it is probably pretty, pretty well covered in the media and you might have heard of it before, there's a very slim chance that it's going to happen to you. It, the real, broken heart syndrome? The broken heart syndrome, yes. Um, uh, data suggests that only about 12,000 Americans might have it in any given year. And yeah, that's 12,000 Americans. And that's, you know, a lot of people if you put them all in one room together. But it probably won't be you. But that doesn't have to stop you from writing a great song about your broken heart. And sending it to us. Because where would the music industry be without the idea of the broken heart? Nowhere. Nowhere. And on that note, let's read some incredibly dramatic emails. All right, I have one that's not signed. It's about the Boob Politics Podcast. Listener writes, I was surprised that you barely touched on the French Revolution. I'm a huge fan of Napoleon, and when I was reading a biography of his wife, Josephine, it talked at length about how there was an entire period in the Revolution after where higher classes would wear gauzy toka-like dresses that often left one breast completely out in the open while the other was lightly wrapped in a see-through fabric. Also, on the subject of big boobs and professionalism, I find the standards reversed in my specific profession. I'm one of my school's three news anchors and the bustiest of us at a robust 34D. My fellow anchors and I get more comments from people around school, mostly guys, about what was on the news when we're showing more cleavage. I hate to think of using boobs to get other students to pay attention to the news, but if it works, dot, dot, dot. All right, well, I have one here from Rick about boob politics as well. And he says, I think the most disturbing thing about how young women are using the hard-won personal expressive freedom 
wrested for them by first and second wave women libbers, is expressed by their choosing the easy, slutty, grunge garb over more meaningful accomplishments now open to them in academics and the professional work world. Maybe it's always been this way, but what a shame people are like we are. I guess I expect too much from evolution. And so does my wife, who has married a man with chronic man-steritis. Sunglasses help. Interesting. All right. We got one from Ken that we'll close out because it's a question I think that everyone can help answer. This is on the episode about the history of the bikini, and he writes, That podcast was both informative and entertaining, but I think you left out one very important question, which is the sexier, a one-piece or two? While popular culture seems to depict the two-piece as the hands-down winner, I'd be curious if polling data showed the same and if these differences were the same among men and women. I've always perceived the two-piece as too revealing, thus taking away from a woman's potential sexiness. Not seeing everything exposed often stimulates more imagination and intrigue, and the one-piece accentuates the natural curves and beauty of a woman's figure. Was the one-piece not partly to blame for the success of Baywatch? Had the actors all been wearing bikinis, it just wouldn't have been the same. I'm just wondering if this is the broader view, or if my take is skewed. So, there's a question for everyone. Which do you like more? Yeah, one or two. One or two. Well, and for all your good questions, you know where to send them. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And during the week, you should follow me and Molly on Twitter. It's uh, Mom Stuff Podcast, and then on Facebook, we are Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as always, you can head over to our blog during the week if you'd like a little extra reading material. It's our blog, Stuff Mom Never Told You, and it's at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?